1 through 17. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned so that he was born blind, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, Neither he nor his parents. This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. While it's daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Jesus said to him, Go wash in the pool of Salaam. This word means sent. So the man went away and washed. When he returned, he could see. The man's neighbors and those who used to see him when he was a beggar said, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is, and others said, No, it's someone who looks like him. But the man said, Yes, it's me. So they asked him, How are you now able to see? He answered, The man they called Jesus made mud, speared it in my eyes, and said, Go to the pool of Salaam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. They asked, Who is this man? He replied, I don't know. Then they led the man who had been born blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus made the mud and smeared it on the man's eyes on the Sabbath day. So Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. The man told them, He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. Some Pharisees said, This man isn't from God because he breaks the Sabbath law. Others said, How can a sinner do miraculous signs like these? So they were divided. Some of the Pharisees questioned the, the man who had been born blind again. What do you have to say about him that since he healed your eyes? He replied, He's a prophet. Thanks, Joe. Hey, how many of you this week, um, maybe you posted anything on one of your social media avenues? Did anyone do that this week? You're lying to me. I will see your social media. So, yeah, you post this week on some of your social media? Um, probably uh, in, in, in some form you posted. If you're, um, you know, I don't know, if you're getting close to my age, you probably used Facebook. I'm sorry. It's just how it is. If you're using that, you're getting older, right? Uh, your kids certainly don't use it. Uh, maybe you liked Instagram because you wanted to take a real cool picture with it because you like to, you know, style up your pictures or brand yourself. Or maybe you just like that little tweet, you know, quick little word you put out. Or maybe you're on one of the ones that the younger folks are on and we can't even keep up, you know, with all of those avenues of social media. What were you doing when you posted on social media this week? Oh, I wanted to show a picture of my kids or my vacation or, you know, celebrate a new job or those type of things. No, what you were really doing is you were testifying. You were offering testimony to whatever it is. Man, my kids are great. Look at them. They're so cute. All right. Or, you know, hey, look, here's my husband. You know, wasn't he awesome this week what he did? Or house or vacation or whatever. We are testifying to something when we put that on there. Now, sometimes we're testifying to an angry moment or a grumpy moment, or we might be testifying that we're gripes and complainers ourselves. I don't know what you're posting, but we are testifying to something. This whole passage we're looking at this morning and next week, because it continues, is about testifying. It's really about that. 
You might say, no, that's about a healing. A guy was healed. No, it's really about testifying. It is really about proclaiming something. That's the key. And so the challenge for us this morning is, is to ask this question is, what are you testifying? What are you testifying to in your life? Maybe in your social media, you would think, what am I really testifying to? And then, of course, this question would be, how are you testifying to Jesus? What does that look like in your life? So let's just take a look at this. John chapter 4. Here's what I want to do. I want to break it up in three parts. And there's, because there's kind of three distinct parts, though, they, they, they tell the story. And then I want to kind of bring it all together with two questions at the end. So it'll be much better if you open up your scripture and you kind of follow along with it. We're going to start with part number one is really, we'll call it the healing. And it, it basically, remember last week, Jesus, we finished off this section where, do you remember the people's response to Jesus, what they were about to do to Jesus? They had already lifted stones that they're going to stone Jesus. That's how happy they were with what he was saying. And Jesus slips away. Jesus is in the temple, and he's going to get stoned in the temple, and he slips away. When he leaves the temple, now he's outside of the temple perimeter, there is this man who was born blind. Now, this isn't one of those occasions like Zacchaeus where Jesus stops and engages the man, but the disciples have a question. You see what the question is? Take a look at, at verse 2. They say, Rabbi... Who sinned so that, this, uh, that he was born blind? Was it this man or was it his parents? A, a question that they wondered. In fact, my guess is they had probably been wondering about this question for a while. And here was a time to ask Jesus. They're wanting to know Jesus. We know what kind of the Pharisees teach. What, what's your say on this? And they give two options. Do you notice that there? Was it this man who sinned or was it his parents that sinned. Now, think about it for a second. The person was born blind. So the first one, it, it kind of baffles us. It's a little mysterious why they would ask it. Did this, was this man sin? Like, did he sin like in the womb or something before he was born? Now that might sound crazy to you, but go back and read the story of Jacob and Esau. And then you remember, oh, they do have this concept that you could sin even in that so is it this man, or is it that God said he would sin eventually on this earth, so it's this man's issue? Or was it his parents? Did his parents do something in the past? And Jesus responds in a way they did not expect. He doesn't take them up on one of his two options. In fact, he bypasses sin altogether. Jesus is basically saying in his response, sin did not cause this condition. It wasn't sin. Neither he nor his parents. So what's he getting at here? Jesus then is telling us that this condition is there for an opportunity. The condition is there for an opportunity. The, this happens so that God's mighty works might be displayed where? In him. And that's an important little part, in him there. It is not that he's saying so that the mighty works of God would be displayed because this guy is about to be healed. So the mighty works of God would be displayed in him. Or if you want to really break down the words through him is what the passage means. So there's something about this guy. There's something about this situation 
that's actually going to be some form of mighty work of God displayed. Now, when we think of mighty works, what do we often think of? You might say, well, healing, that's a mighty work of God, right? Or uh, maybe the feeding of the 5,000, we said that that was a mighty work of God. We think in terms of the miracles and those type of things. Or we might go even further. We might say, when we feed the poor, that's like a mighty work of God from his people to go out there and do those type of things. But what do we need to be faithful to in this passage, as we talked about last week? We need to be faithful to the book of John. What has John been talking about up till now? The mighty work of God in John is testifying. It is proclaiming. It is when God's name is proclaimed, or when it's proclaimed that this is from God, this is God speaking, this is God working, this isn't just a man from Galilee, this is God in a man. This is God testifying through human form. This is the mighty works of God, testifying and proclaiming that is these works that we see in John. So there's something about this man that there is going to be testifying or proclaiming that happens through him. And in order to do that, Jesus is going to heal him. Listen, if you read this passage and you stopped at the healing, he went away, he washed, he came back, and he could see. You really miss this greater picture. And that's what we're going to walk through, the proclaiming and the testifying. So we look here, and the guy goes away, and he is healed. He is healed. But there's more at work. Let me ask you, how are you at God's works? Like those great works of testifying or proclaiming Christ, how are you? Can I go back to social media for a, a moment? I'm still baffled on how believers, churchgoers, that we will post about anything and everything that goes on in our life, but little to no church posts, Christian posts. In fact, I, I started looking at athletes who I thought, you know, an athlete that I, I'm, I might draw to, maybe they're a Christian, and I started to look at these athletes, and I started to kind of look and say, um, you know, is, is this somebody that kind of uses their platform to proclaim Christ, maybe in athletics? You might have looked at something, and I don't know, some other thing that you're into. And if you look on your Instagram, you'll notice there's like little bio. Do you have that? Little bio before you actually have the post. And you can put little things, whatever you want. So I looked at several of them, and I would see things like, you know, John 3.16, our follower of Jesus, you know, lover of Christ, these type of things. And then you go to the post. And if you just scroll down through the post... I could get weeks, months, maybe years, and I've seen nothing that testifies to Jesus. Listen, I'm not for a moment saying that means you're not a Christian, so don't get convicted in that way. What I'm saying is we are not conditioned to think of using avenues to testify and proclaim about Christ. We're conditioned to think of, man, that guy was healed. Awesome. Let's move on to another story. But what we miss here is this guy actually uses this to go and to proclaim and testify to Christ. And that is the crux of the story. And that is what Jesus is calling great works of God. Testifying and proclaiming Jesus. So let's uh, ask ourselves again, how are you with your, these great works? 
Now, there's another passage uh, right after that. Maybe it's a little confusing. Jesus says, while it's daytime, we must do the works of him who sent us. Night is coming when nobody can work. Now, if we take that literal, we would say, well, we can work. We can see in the daytime. At the night, we can't see. So that would make sense. Yet it would not make sense on why Jesus would put it in there if he was just talking literally. If we go back in the book of John, we see up till now, light is when Jesus is there. He is the light. That's what John says in the very beginning. But darkness is coming. And what's he talking about? Jesus is saying, my time has not yet come. In just a little while, he's going to say, my time has come. And there is this period of darkness. John kind of boils it down this way to say, daytime light, that is when Jesus is here. But there's a time coming at night when Jesus is not here. And Jesus is saying, while I'm here with you, we must proclaim. Now, biblical scholars are a little divided on this one. Whether the we Jesus is talking about is him and the disciples, we must go out, or Jesus is talking about the man, you and I, we must go. God has put a calling here for us to proclaim. Doesn't really change the story and matter, but... The night is when Jesus is not here. While Jesus is here, we need to go out and do these mighty works to proclaim the message of God, which is the reason Jesus came in the first place. Okay, here's the action. So Jesus takes some dirt. He spits on the ground, and he makes this, this saliva, I don't know, this dirt pie maybe you made when you were little kids, and he puts it on the guy's eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems very strange to me. So I thought, well, surely, surely there's some... Jewish custom of this. Surely there's some, you know, great healers uh, that this was the technique. Surely that there's some uh, route here where mud and saliva were used as medicine. Nope. This, so what is Jesus doing here? It's kind of gross, right? In fact, Jesus actually says to, to the man, look, uh, I'm gonna, I, I do this, I put it on your eyes, go to the pool of Siloam. Uh, that's in the temple. Right now, they're out of the temple. He's going to send him into the temple. Now, this guy was born blind, so he, up till now, he would not have been allowed to be in the temple. Not because the law says a blind person can't go in, but they developed this thinking that probably if you're, like, lame and you can't walk, you probably aren't taking care of yourself. If you're blind, you're probably not clean and washing yourself. You're not, probably, you're not taking care of yourself. So those were all, they were all excluded from worship. And Jesus now takes mud, puts it on his eyes, and says, now go in the temple and wash yourself, knowing that's going to be a scene. He also knows that he is making this man unclean just by making him dirty and putting human fluids on this man. That automatically would make you unclean. And he's going to send him into the temple, to the pool to wash. And the pool, as Joe read, is called sent. Jesus is speaking a message to this person. What was the message? Listen, we have great and mighty works to proclaim God through you. Now go and wash at the pool called sent to know that you are sent to do this. And the man is healed. He's healed. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus could have just I don't know, touch the guy. He could have just spoke the words of healing. But he goes through this act. There is something greater going on here. 
And sure enough, we'll find out in just a minute what it is that leads to testifying and proclaiming. Now, there's great con confusion. This is part two, if you're moving along. Part two in verse nine, uh, the neighbors are like, hey, wait, is this the man that was he? Wait, is this the man that was born blind? This isn't him, is he? And some said, no, 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 that's not him. Some were confused. They, they don't, who is this guy? Why were they so confused? I mean, it's not like this is two million people living in this town. Wherever they are, most likely they had seen this person. If you walked in this morning and you had been healed from a great affliction, I would look at you and know it's you. So what's going on here? Why? This is, this is the big thing. They could not comprehend healing from somebody born in this condition. You see, their thought was when somebody was born in this condition, this condition, the affliction is God's will. God specifically put this affliction in place. Don't mess with God's will. And so it's one thing to heal somebody who might have developed an affliction or something happened to them, but somebody born this way, this is the will of God. So it went against God's will. They had a very hard time understanding this. It's what had been preached to them their entire life, that this can't really be this. They had, and this is what I want you to hear, they had to fight a preconceived notion of how God would work. They had to fight this, a preconceived idea. Do you ever have those preconceived idea of how God has to work? On how God might transform somebody's life? On what he will do? I mean, I was in college my first year when I heard the story of the talking donkey in the Old Testament. Do you remember that one? That will really, you really have to battle your preconceived thought of God speaking through a donkey. And so that's what they're fighting here. They're fighting God can only work one way. God can do this, but he can't do that. God looks this way, he doesn't look that way. And they're having to fight this notion. And so they ask, how did this happen in verse 11? And the man has his first opportunity to testify. His first opportunity to do great works of God happens here. The opportunity to tes testify, and he says this, the man they call Jesus. Now, he could have just said, ah, yeah, I don't know. I don't really want to talk about it. Or some man. He said the man that called Jesus. So there is testimony he's giving that Jesus is the one that did this. Yet he doesn't yet claim to be a follower. He's not yet claiming that he's of God or this came from God. But he is testifying that Jesus did it. There's one step there in his testifying. Now this happened outside the temple. He had gone back out to where his people are, where the neighbors were. And so an easier place probably for him to testify. That brings us to part three here. And this is where we spend, need to spend a little bit of time. This is the first interrogation. The religious leaders are going to interrogate the man. We're going to get a second interrogation next week. It's the people who take this man to the Pharisees. They take him. So here's what the people are saying is, wow, this is, this is the man? I, I can't even wrap my head around this. Oh, it's Jesus that did this to you? We better take you to the religious leaders. Knowing at this point there was incredible friction between the religious leaders and anyone who was a follower of Jesus. 
And so they take him to the religious leaders. That's probably their fear of the religious leaders. And it says here that John wants us to know that the mud was put on his eyes. When? On what day? On the Sabbath. Not the first time this has shown up. So I, I was looking at this and I was asking a few questions as you might ask as well. So what? What's the big deal here? What's the big deal with healing on the Sabbath? That this happened on the Sabbath? Who cares? Well, it was a big deal to them. A really big deal. And it's where they go first. What happened is the first question, or excuse me, the first question was, how did they practice the Sabbath? Like, what did they do on the Sabbath? Well, a few things they did they are, are similar to what you and I did. On, on Friday nights, when Sabbath began at sundown, they would have their prayer time. They would have prayers at sunset. And then they would rest and reflect. Something you know, back in January, when I, when I shared the mess, the series on Sabbath, I challenged you with. Now, I follow your Facebook, so some of you are not doing a very good job of resting and reflecting on the Sabbath, and you need it. But that's what they would do. Then morning prayers, they'd get up and they would pray in the morning as a family. Then they would read scriptures, the Jewish scripture of the Old Testament, and then they would go to synagogue and they would worship in the synagogue. Sometimes they would go twice to synagogue and they'd worship like you come to church. I wonder if in 200 years, if somebody says, hey, what those Christians do back in 2022 to honor the Sabbath? Well, they went to church for an hour sometimes, and the list would end there. This is what they did to honor the Sabbath, but there's more. Because the second question has to be asked, well, then how was Jesus violating the Sabbath? Surely Jesus was doing all of these things. How was he violating? We got to do a little history on here. You see, it, back in back in BC, 167 to 160, this is called the time of the Maccabees, and the Seleucids had controlled Jerusalem at the time, so there was no freedom for the Jews, and a group known as the Maccabees rose up, and they wanted to take the whole city back. But all they could manage was to take back the temple district. So they took back the temple district, which housed the temple as well. And they declared it now open time for the temple. You could now go again to worship in the temple. I mean, can you remember a couple years ago when, when we felt like kind of COVID shut down a lot of things? And then, you know, some churches were like, hey, we're open back up. You can come back in, you know, kind of that feeling, but just magnify it. That's what's going on. So there's great victory and excitement. And one thing they wanted to do because they had been under oppression so long was they wanted to come up with a list of things that would distinctly say, this is what it means to be Jewish. This is what it means. And so they came up with a list of things. It turned out to be 39 categories of activities on what we did and didn't do. And it came to be known as the Melicote. And they would live this out. Now, if you know history, you know this didn't last very long. The temple was overthrown again, and once again, they were no longer free. But there was this still this uh, allowance for them to live out their religious practice as long as it didn't cause conflict or treason. In fact, that lasts all the way up to Jesus' day. So the religious leaders now decided this is our avenue. So they took the Melicote and they used it. 
And they use that to say, this is what you can do on the Sabbath, and this is what you cannot do on the Sabbath. They even went back and tried to assign passages in the Old Testament to the different 39 articles of the Melicote, some of which, if you were to read it today, you, you would scratch your head just as much as they always did on how that passage connected here. But they used this as a way to kind of control the temple and control religious activities. So you understand how oppressive the idea of Sabbath would be in Jesus' day from the religious leaders. So how was Jesus violating the practice, the Sabbath? Number one, you're not allowed to plow on the Sabbath. So you can't plow your fields on the Sabbath. You can't move dirt around on the Sabbath. What does Jesus do? He reaches down and he moves some dirt around. You go like, what's it? You move a little dirt on the ground? That's plowing? Yes. That's the point of the control the religious leaders have. The second one is you're not allowed to irrigate the soil. And Jesus spit into the dirt. Like that's irrigating the soil? That's the point. That's how oppressive this was from religious leaders. Then he put it on the man's eyes and he tells him to do what? To go wash. Well, that's fine on any other day. But on the Sabbath, the Melko taught, you only washed your hands and your feet. It was minimal, minimal washing. Anything beyond your hands and your feet was working. And this man was going to go wash his face, his eyes. So why did Jesus stoop down and spit in the ground and put it on his eyes? He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly the violation, at least from the religious leader's standpoint. So Jesus knew exactly he was creating a confrontation. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. The guy's standing in front of him, standing in front of the religious leaders, and they're questioning him about this. And Jesus, all the time, because of this miraculous act and how he did it, he is challenging their preconceived idea of how God would work. God can only work through the Melicote. He can only work through these 39 articles. And Jesus is saying, whatever. And then they asked the man, verse 17, what do you have to say about him, Jesus, since he healed your eyes? I mean, they're setting him up. Now, what do you have to say? How do you testify about this? And how does he reply? He's a prophet. He's a prophet. Now, there was a lot of what things he could say. It had already been going around that he's the Messiah. It had already been going around that like he's God incarnate or he speaks like he's from God. And he decides to say he is a prophet. Now, this might ring a bell back. Elijah, if you remember the story about Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha. If you remember the armies coming up against Elisha, and he's praised to God, God, would you close the eyes? And then he moves his men to somewhere else, to Samaria, and then he says, Lord, would you open their eyes? And they open their eyes, and they're, they're safe. They're, they're out of harm's way. So it could have been, he's saying, I, he's a prophet, just like Elijah, just like Elijah prayed that the eyes would be open. He's a prophet. They have an act of a prophet to go on to. But he's not yet saying Messiah. And he's not yet saying it's, he is from God, or this was an act from God. This was his second chance to testify. And he says, how does, uh, he says he's a prophet. And that's what 
he's getting at when he says he's a prophet. Right now, if you were to claim Jesus to the religious leaders to be a follower of Jesus in the temple, you'd be put out of the temple. If you were outside of the temple where they, they might have been right now, we're not quite sure if it was back in the temple or not. If you're outside of the temple, you're at very least, at least got put on a list where you would not be allowed in the temple to worship. Man, this guy had just been healed. He was just able to go to the temple now. And he's running the risk. So he says prophet instead of Messiah. Here's the takeaway this morning. And, and you could say there's a continuation to this next week. But here's the questions for us. What are you testifying to? What would be the dominant things your life is testifying to? If somebody says, you know, what is that person all about? How far down before Jesus would come into the picture? What are you testifying to? And then the question, maybe more specific, how are you testifying to Jesus? Like, how are you intentionally testifying to Jesus? Maybe you're like, hey, I've got a list of a few people. I've been inviting them to church. Hey, that's a form of testifying to Jesus. You're saying, I go to church. I'm a Christian. I'm into that thing. Why don't you come and join me? That's a form of testifying. I've got a friend who just shared this last week. The divorce just got put on the table. And so that opened up a door for me to talk to them because they're in heartbreak land. Confusion, as you might imagine. But that opened up a door to testify about Jesus and what I thought might be missing right now in his search. So what are you testifying? How are you testifying about Jesus? The great works of God in John in this story, it's about testifying. It's about proclaiming Jesus. So hence, back to our prayer time, we're praying that this week you would have an avenue to testify about Jesus. Actually, let me say it more clearly, because I think, I think those words were, were not correct. I'm saying you would take the opportunity that I know God will already give this week. There will be an opportunity in your life to proclaim about Jesus. It will be there this week. It'll be at work. It'll be with a family member. It'll be with somebody. So the prayer was, would you take the opportunity and testify to Jesus as we've learned in this story? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. You challenge us. Lord, there's some of us that are sitting in preconceived ideas of how you'll work. And some of us, our preconceived ideas is, you're not going to use me. That's for somebody else. Father, I pray you'd break through that, that they would see loud and clear. You want to work. You work in creative, sometimes mysterious ways. But you definitely want to use us. So, Lord, may every time we post something, text, tweet, whatever we use, may every time, would we be reminded, I am testifying to something. And would that be followed by the question is, how am I testifying to Jesus? Lead us in this way, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.